Hey y'all, welcome to The Hue. Hue represents true color, and we're here to tell the true stories of the inspiring folks we encounter along the way. I'm your host, Jessica, and I'm here with our studio director, Emily McNeil, and we're recording recaps at the Matt Black Sound Studios. Hey guys. Hey Em. We're going to talk a little bit about Alex Templador. Alex, she was great. Such a beauty. So cool. Passionate. So passionate. Alex is a freelance writer. She has written for some very prestigious publications, 8100, and um, various travel magazines, Condé Nast, and even now she's working on some pieces for Dwell. Yeah, and her articles have gotten picked up by like even more outlets. Oh, yeah. It's pretty incredible to listen to her talk. I mean, there were so many. I'm writing them down like, wow. And she is also, like we were talking earlier about conversation and people that just sort of come to a conversation with like, voltage, if you will. I mean, she just has so much passion behind the things that she writes about. Yeah, such an energy. Mm-hmm. She's a force and she loves to talk about or write about diversity. She has, um, you know, personal connection to writing about diverse stories for travel and even for design. And she comes at it from this really, this, I feel like this gets so overused, this word, but I, it's perfect. There's no other word for it in this moment is that she comes at it from such an authentic place. Oh yeah, definitely. It's not like this is something that we're doing right now. We're talking about diverse stories. This is something that she will always do. Yeah. This is like her life's work, her Mm -hmm. mission uh, to talk about it and to be an advocate for these people. Absolutely. And we had sort of like done this interview with Zara and Zara had said, you know, when talking about diversity and design that we need to tell more diverse stories, that it needs to become a part of the everyday culture and all the magazines that we're looking at. Yeah. And Alex is doing that. And has always been doing that. Mm -hmm. But it was good because it's like, it's all great and well if we talk about it, but if we don't know how to do it, then what's the point? So I think Alex gave us all some really great tips on how to get our stories out there and get published. So maybe some of our designers will enjoy listening and take away some tips. I thought one thing that she said that I would have never thought was that she, as the writer, wants you to come to her with the story. Yeah, like to give her the angle, like why you, why Uh your story. Yeah, not just a press release. She's like, I don't need a press release. I want to know why you tell me about, tell me what story you want. Yeah, I thought that was really neat. Good advice. And she's even perfectly willing for people to contact her directly, our our listeners. So if you do have a story that you think that Alex would like to write about, we know she'd love to hear from you. Yeah. So hopefully you guys can take away some great tips from our conversation with her. Hey, Alex. Welcome to The Hue. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We're so excited that you're here. So Alex Timblador is a writer, and I met her because I had a friend who said, you need to send out a press release about Folio. And I was like, okay. So I sent out a press release, and Alex was one of the recipients, and I followed up with her and had just an immediate interesting conversation, I felt. And I thought, hmm, I want to talk to her on the hue. And then it was like, hmm, I looked at... Alex's work and it's all it's obviously travel and design and all of those things but she you had such a like heart and focus you could tell on diversity and telling diverse stories yeah it's just been a part of my life growing up um I'm half Mexican half white so I have this mixed identity and it really gave me a new a unique way of seeing the world um and then my you know, I have other elements of diversity in my life. My sister has mental and physical disabilities. My brother's in the LGBTQ community. So it was in my life all the time. And I couldn't understand why people had such a hard time with it. And I wanted to kind of be that translator through written word for people who just didn't know how to connect with it or didn't know how to ask about diversity or wanted to learn about it or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And, but you've always been a writer. Yes. Um, growing up, I was really into art, though. I was an artist as a kid. I was always drawing. In high school, I did a lot of art, a lot of art shows. And then in college, in under, undergrad and in grad school, I was a working artist. Um, people would pay me for, you know, portraits. And I got into painting. I'd never done painting until I got to college. Um, so that was very interesting. And it was a great little side career while I was in college and, you know, making extra money. Um, But eventually I found writing was way more of a passion for me. 
Um, I'd been writing all of my life, but I really started focusing on it in undergrad. And then I went and got my MFA in creative writing for grad school. And I knew I could continue and do art. And I kind of wanted to, and I kind of did for a bit. Um, <laughs> but if you want to be really good at something, you got to put all, your all in it. And I knew that writing was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And you were good at it. I was good at it. But I also knew that I needed to kind of work harder at it. I, I think I have a, there are things in any aspect of creativity um, that you're just kind of instinctually good at. But there were a lot of elements that I needed to really work on and focus. And I felt like I kind of came into the literary fiction game a little bit later than other people. And article writing, I, you know, didn't do because I didn't have a journalism background. So I was just trying to explore it and learn about it and read stuff up on it and just practice over and over. Mm-hmm. And so it's its own style. It is. Article writing. It's and I was doing two different styles. Mm-hmm. Well, and I still do two different styles all the time. You do and, creative writing as well? Yeah. So I write novels. Okay. Um, oh, that, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. My um, first <laughs> book came out in 2018. I was going to say, you just had your first book. <laughs> Will you please share the title? Yes. Uh, so my first book is called Secrets of the Casa Rosada. Oh, it's so pretty the way you say it. Thank and it is, um, it is a young adult story. Yes, it is young adult, but it does translate well exactly. with all audiences. That's what I was say. Um, and... It was kind of focused on me exploring my Mexican-American identity through this fictional story. Um, I wrote it as my thesis when I was in grad school, and it eventually got published seven years later. And that's about typical? It's about typical. Uh It seems like a long time, but, you know, I was writing it for about four years. Takes a while to get it out to literary agents, and then once you get a contract, it takes a while to get published. So people don't realize, like, my second book just got acquired in June. I think um, Half Outlaw by Blackstone Publishing, and that'll come out in two years. Yeah. Honestly, we haven't even started the editing process yet. So it's incredible. It takes a while. And so Casa Rosata, mm-hmm. did I say that correctly? Casa Rosada. Rosada. Yeah. So, okay, so this book is you exploring your Mexican heritage. And I, um, my husband is Panamanian, and I'm so um, envious of that. I'm like, oh, I just love that culture and that just, I just love it. And I want to learn about it. And I love going to Panama and all of these things. And so I wonder if you were always interested in this side of your, your culture and your, yeah, your history. Yeah, actually I have an, some people aren't. No, yeah. It takes a while. Sometimes it's maturity that brings it on. My husband's kind of like, yeah, that's cool. But absolutely. Um, when I was growing up, I didn't really have much interest in it. Okay. I, I've always actually connected more with being mixed and that feeling of being pulled between two different cultures all the time and having to code switch all the time between different communities and cultures. Um, So I didn't really pay much attention to it until we went to Laredo, Texas. So I grew up in Wichita Falls. It's a very diverse community. It has an Air Force Mm -hmm. base. So you have people from all over the world, right? Laredo, mostly Mexican-American or Mexican because it's on the border of Texas and Mexico. And I would go there and I couldn't speak Spanish because my grandma didn't teach my dad to speak it. And so I didn't know it. And I felt very uncomfortable. Like I wasn't enough. Like I didn't know anything. And as soon when I got older, I had friends who had quinceaneras and I was like, am I supposed to have one? <laughs> I don't know. And then I didn't. My mother-in-law is already <laughs> campaigning for that. <laughs> <laughs> They're fun and interesting. Did yeah. you end up having one? No, I never ended yeah. up having one. Um but when I got into undergrad, I had a very interesting experience going to undergrad in Louisiana, in Northeast Louisiana. So everyone seems to think all of Louisiana is like New Orleans. It's not yeah. at all. You know, mm-hmm. New Orleans is very diverse. The rest of the state is not so much. Um, but in that experience of being in a very in a state that's very black and very white and that there's really not anything in between um, or in the area that I was in, it's forced me to go, oh, wait, you know, I'm this in-between thing. And what does that mean to me? What does it mean to be Mexican when you don't have any other people around you who are Mexican-American? Growing up in Texas, I had that all the time. Yeah. And then I went somewhere where I was the one of the only ones, and it was very eye-opening. And I'm very thankful that I had that experience because in grad school, I decided you are going to learn more about this. Do you speak Spanish now? I do, but I get very uncomfortable and I get nervous. Understandable. Um, I'm about intermediate. I can 
I can survive when I'm traveling yes. by myself with Spanish. And when I'm, I was in Costa Rica, I think was the last country, the Spanish speaking country I was in. They are no, yeah. They're so correct. friendly there. And I'm sure we're so easy to talk to and welcoming yeah. of you speaking. Yeah, Spanish. they were. And they were like, you're actually really good. I don't know why you're upset. I'm like, you <laughs> know, um, but sometimes, you know, if I have a glass of wine or five, I will very comfortably speak a lot of Spanish and I don't know where it comes from. So, <laughs> so you write this book and this is you exploring, you know, your heritage and you're, are you wanting to tell the story of someone who is from two cultures or are you wanting, what, what's tell, I want to hear a little bit about that. That's kind of cool. Absolutely. Um, so Martha is my main character. She was raised with a single mother who kind of took her around the U.S., here and there, never really any interesting places. And at one point, her mother, at the very beginning of the book, abandons her in Laredo, Texas, with a grandmother she's never met, who only speaks Spanish, Okay. and a whole big family that Immersion. she didn't know existed. Immersion immediately. What do you do? So mm -hmm. this girl doesn't know she's even Mexican before she gets there. She thinks she's Italian, because <laughs> that's what her mom's <laughs> told her. And so she's like, wait, I have this whole community and identity and family, and what does that mean to me, and I, I don't feel like I'm part of it. I've not ever been a part of it for 16 years. And so really diving into that kind of othering feeling when you don't feel like you belong to your own community, and that mm -hmm. happens a ton. It doesn't matter your ethnic or racial background. It happens across a lot of different experiences. And so kind of focusing on really Martha does kind of the stuff that I was trying to do in my own experience. I didn't have the same experience that Martha does. It's, this is not autobiographical, but yeah, the feeling she has. But you were able to, she was your protagonist and you had, you knew you had a point of view mm -hmm. and that's super cool. Mm -hmm. And so when did you decide, like, when did you learn you were a storyteller? Cause you're, Martha's telling, you're telling a story with her and then, then you're telling real stories, like, you know, doing the journalism thing. Mm -hmm. Like when did that sort of transition? Um, writing for articles, I guess we call it. When I started writing articles, mm -hmm. really. Um, so when I was in grad school, I was just writing creative writing. I went and moved to LA for a year. I was writing captions and subtitles for TV and film, which is not as exciting as everyone thinks. It's <laughs> kind of boring after a while. And um, while, I was, while I was out there, one of my friends said, hey, my, my boss owns a, a big blog magazine online and she's looking for writers. I said, what's it about? And she says, LGBT families. And I said, well, I don't have a family. You know, I'm an advocate for LGBT community, but I don't have a family. Is that okay? She said, yeah. So I start writing a few articles. I went to like red carpet events and interviewed some celebrities, um, which was pretty cool and fun in Los Angeles to do. I bet. And so that was kind of my very first step into writing articles on a blog that was very low key. The um, editor in chief, which was the owner of the blog, I just had a very, like, I had the opportunity to talk to her about my writing and she could get me feedback and she was teaching me. She was a good writer. Yeah, but she was, I, she was very knowledgeable about industries mm -hmm. and how writing online kind of works. Okay. And so she was showing me how marketing and PR and branding work. I eventually became, um, one of her part-time employees. And so she would teach me how branding and marketing works, how you can use writing online to, you know, convey messages and stories, but you could also do it to discuss products and brands. And so really kind of showing me this- The business. The business side of writing. Mm -hmm. And that was amazing. She gave me a really great feedback. She was a great mentor for a few years was it, to me. Was it intimidating interviewing celebrities and famous people? Oh, absolutely. How I did was, you gear up for that? <laughs> I, and it's so, it was a little embarrassing because I felt like I'm just like this little fish in a big sea because I would go with my, my cell phone and I would have to like record them <laughs> and other people would have like microphones or something like that. And, um, and I would always be put amateur equipment. I had very amateur <laughs> and I would try to like dress up like that yes. was going to help. But what I didn't realize is whenever you go and interview celebrities, the PR people kind of at the event will place you in order of importance. So I was always at the very end. Okay. So by the time they got to me, they wouldn't want to talk sometimes. And you're like taking it personally and they're like, girl, we're tired. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, please talk to me. Or I would try to get in um, 
with some of the other interviewers, we would be like, okay, like you asked this question, we're all going to record at the same time. So we would try to help Teamwork. each other out. Yeah. Um, I didn't do too many red carpet events, but one of my very first articles actually for her site ended up getting um, reposted on Huffington Post. There you go. Um, so that was kind of cool learning. I And I knew Huffington Post at the time. I didn't know how cool it was to get your stuff on Huffington Post. Um, and so learning like- Did they oh, have to call you and get your permission? No. See, oh. this is the worst part of the writing industry. I, I do not like this at all. Um, when I write something and I write it for any outlet in the world, any other outlet- can post it on their website as long as they showcase where it was originally published mm -hmm. and have my name and have the you know outlet's name. They do not have to pay me for that. No royalties so for that? They get money for showcasing my work. Uh -huh. You know, and a lot of my pieces get picked up by other outlets. Yahoo will pick it up, MSN will pick it up, sometimes just many different Absolutely. outlets or people will put them in their newsletters and mm -hmm. um, just basically copy and paste in newsletters or copy and paste in their blogs. And if they make money off of having my stuff on their site, I don't get any of that. So the weird. only payment I get is from the outlet that pays me to write that article. And that's wow. it. Yeah. But let's tell people why that your stories are getting picked up. I mean, I, what I thought was cool. And like I, I think I mentioned this earlier when I started looking at your, is it called a muck? Muckrack. That's where you can kind of see a writer's stories. And it was very clear that you're very passionate about diverse stories. And 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 obviously Alex writes for the travel industry and the design industry and the arts industry, but you were always weaving in, it looked to me like telling diverse stories. And so I'm sure there's, and we've talked about this, you and I talked about this before we started, there's not as much of those stories being told. And so I think that it's like, oh, well, Alex told that story and I'm going to grab that and put it in here, right? Yes. Um, it's unfortunate at times over the years, I would pitch out diverse stories, diverse ideas. And I was like, I, this is really interesting. And no one's written about it because whether you're writing about travel and the arts or design, the publishing industry as a whole is, um, a little has, it, they were a little hesitant at times to discuss things that they were like, Oh, everyone's, this is going to, be a downer or this is depressing mm -hmm. or this is something we don't want to actually look at because it makes us look bad or it makes other people look bad. And that is never the point of writing about diverse stories is to showcase, oh, this is a bad thing. It's it's saying, you know, maybe things weren't always done well. And let's explain why. Let's have historical approach on this. And then let's also tell stories that have never been told before. Exactly. I got so tired and I still get tired of seeing the same story, the same person interviewed, the same um, designers on the front covers of magazines or the same buildings or the same cities showcased. Um, there is so much more out in the world that we haven't even scratched the surface when it comes to storytelling. And a lot of times we have any, as writers, I don't think we've been either given the opportunity to, or we felt welcome to, um, and it's not, I'm not putting that on editors because sometimes editors are at the mercy of somebody above them. That owns right? the publishing house. Who owns it. Has yes. a lot of power. I've had some instances where people who actually own the publishing company have actually called me when I wrote something that made them feel very uncomfortable. And I've had very- Do you have an example? Yes, I well, I have a travel example. Okay. Um, I wrote an article that was looking at travel agents and basically saying, if you don't know the experiences of people of color when they travel, you need to learn it. It's mm -hmm. your job to take care of your client. Mm -hmm. And if you have clients that are people of color, you need to recognize that they don't have the same experiences and do something about it whenever you're working with them. And so I write this piece. I actually interviewed travel agents. I surveyed them, got some very appalling responses. And I was working on this with my editor. He knew where I was going to go with it. He edited it. Um, my editor was, is phenomenal. I, I, he's a big advocate of mine and he always had me back on everything. But, um, after I wrote it, he, my editor goes, Hey, the owner of the company wants to talk to you. And I said, okay. And I knew it wasn't going to be good. I had a feeling it wasn't going to be good. And he didn't really know. My editor didn't know what he was going to say. And the guy calls me on the phone on my day off, no less. 
<laughs> and wants to Classy. talk to me for an hour and a half. And he basically starts off calling me an angry brown woman. Who made you mad enough to write this article? Mm. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm not angry. I just kind of like, you know, tell a different point of view here. <laughs> yeah. And oh, mm. man, he and for the next hour and a half, I basically he was basically trying to argue with me that he's not racist, which I never said he was or anything. I don't know. He was just like, I don't have any bias or privilege and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, OK, um, I can give you many examples how that is all not true. And I would just kind of give pushback throughout the whole conversation. But I shouldn't have had to deal with that. My publisher, the guy who owns the company, whoever owns the company does not need to be calling me the writer, except to say you did a phenomenal job and we want to see you write more for us. Um, in any instance, if they have a problem, it should go down the chain of command, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. You must um, have just struck a nerve with this person and and that's clearly what happened there. So And this was about two years ago. And you know, every industry is different if I'm writing about travel arts or design. And um, I found at the time travel still was not comfortable talking about race. And even now they're a little uncomfortable about it. And travel, they want always to be this, like, this is someone's vacation. It's a good thing. They want it to be happy. But you also wrote the story about um, people traveling with disabilities because you have a sister mm -hmm. who has disabilities and you wanted to illuminate that this is a different experience. And here are some places maybe that can really accommodate that or not accommodate that. And you wanted to to show that side of things for the travel industry. and Yeah, I don't think that, I think people think or assume that how they travel, everybody else has the same Probably. exact experience, right? Yeah. And that's not true in any part, in any aspect of society. Um, so people who have disabilities have, it, it's very hard for them to travel, not because of their disabilities, because other, like communities and destinations and airplanes and hotels don't make it accessible, even when it's the law mm -hmm. in some countries to make it accessible. Um, so kind of highlighting that a lot of companies need to do a lot better mm -hmm. um, because not everybody has the, equal, the accessibility to even see the world. Yeah. The Q is brought to you by Folio. Located in the iconic Meadows Building in Dallas, Texas, Folio is a boutique rep agency which seeks to connect interior designers with creative resources. We would love to connect with you in real life. Please visit our website to set up an appointment, folioco.com, and follow us on Instagram at folioco. We talked about this a little bit before. I mean, and what a gift, this family that you have, and it helped you see these things that you can write and then share that gift with other people so they can hear those stories. And I think what brought I thought was interesting about speaking to you and after reading your um, bio was that we had just spoken to Zara on the hue and one of the main things she said is like, how can we do better? Well, we can tell more diverse stories that the publishers and the, the magazines can tell more diverse stories. And so I think we talked about this a minute ago, but how you as a writer want to tell those stories, but then how do you get, if you have publishers like this guy who don't want the stories, whatever story being told that makes them uncomfortable, like how do we get them out there? How are we going to break through these things and get these more diverse stories out there? Yeah. I, was very excited when the Black Lives Matter movement reignited. Not excited why it had to reignite, because uh, it was unfortunate tragedies that have happened over the years and continue to happen. Um, but when it happened, I started to notice a change in publishing where I don't know if they felt pressured to or if they really just had their eyes opened. Um, but everybody started asking for diverse stories, diverse writers, we're going to try to do better. We're going to work on an editing team. We're going to have discussions about this. And that's exciting. And I'm so glad for it. Now I'm getting people reaching out to me. I bet you're busier than ever. I am busier than ever. <laughs> Everyone wants Alex. pandemic, no less. I have too much work. Um, but people are reaching out to me or I'm seeing that they're asking for these certain pitches and I'm reaching out to them. And then they're kind of work, continuing to work with me, which is phenomenal because you don't always get you know, editors who want to continue to work with you. And that's okay. It's for variety of reasons, right? Um, but I'm glad there's some movement on this right now. My concern is that it becomes a trend that we forget about. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like it has a heavy, a heavier weight now more than ever to me. It does have a heavier weight. And I don't think we can unsee what we've seen. Exactly. Right. But I think we can get comfortable. And we've seen that with how people handle the pandemic. 
we get tired of doing something that makes us uncomfortable and then we just want to move past it, right? Mm -hmm. And I hope that doesn't happen when we're talking about race or social issues, when it comes to design or the arts or whatever it may be. Um, I think it's exciting. I love telling stories. I love diving into it. But there's also just a lot of obstacles to get to that point. We were talking earlier on how do I even find these diverse stories mm -hmm. sometimes in the design industry? Number one, we know there's not many people of color that work in the design industry on various levels. And you had that conversation with Zara. Um, I can't usually go and Google this very easily. Because they've not been published. They've not been published. Yeah. And the ones who have been published, phenomenal. But I don't always want to interview the same person. I like to spread the love. Let's get other stories out there. I'm trying to find a good story. Um, and then I also don't necessarily just want to be writing a diverse story because it's a diverse story. Exactly. I want to be telling somebody's phenomenal story because it's, it's a good story yeah. to be told, right? Yeah. And I and I hope that there is a slight adjustment in the future. Right now, I think it's important that we recognize and say we're working to write and tell stories that are diverse. In the future, I hope we just start recognizing that those diverse stories don't need to be during Black History Month and Hispanic Heritage Month. They need to just be consistent and throughout the entire year. And they need to be just as um, integrated into the magazine as right any other story. Right now it's treated different. Yes. Why does it have to be different? Yes. It's just another story. It's That's just awesome. another story. But we also have to make sure that we just, I think we don't have the system in place yet for it to be like that. We don't have enough diverse editors and writers at outlets or freelance writers who work with these outlets. And um, we also definitely do not have owners of publishing companies that are diverse. How, so someone's listening and they are a diverse person with a, a diverse story and they, they want to tell you, um, they want to pitch their story to you. So any tips? Yes, I, and oh, we should also share your info. Yes. So, um, you can, for my info, you can find me at Alex Templador on any social media. Uh, my last name is spelled T-E-M-B-L-A-D-O-R. And my website is just my name, alextemblador.com. I do have a contact page on there that you can email me and I will email you back so that you can get my actual email. Um, but if somebody wants to reach out to me, I do like press releases. I do read press releases, but I really do enjoy when you give me story ideas. Because you could just say, hey, here's my company and this is what I do, but I might not necessarily understand what your story and your background is. Kind of give me give me a little something that I'm going to get excited about. Tell me something that's different about you or that you've done with design or that you're trying to, you know, source some cool new sustainable fabric. Or... So give the writer the story idea. You're, the... you're totally cool with that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And um. This happens across all the aspects of my writing career. Um, when people send me press releases or I have connections with PR people, they're like, hey, I had this cool story idea. What do you think about writing it? And that's a great way to help me to figure out what that story background is. Because if you just say, hey, we have, you know, this great person who works at our company, we'd love for you to interview. Well, I don't know why I need to interview them unless you tell me there is something unique yeah. or they have some perspective or we they think can we have speak a story here, Alex. Yes. Yeah. What is that story? Yeah. Uh -huh. And I know that's not technically the jobs of designers or like home product companies. So we're having this conversation now though, yes. so that we can share this with people because we do want this to be a more proactive thing exactly. that's happening, especially in our community. Cause as you and I've talked, it's just not. Mm -hmm. So, and I think also when I was first starting out writing in arc about architecture and design, it was a really big eye opener because I started working with Ad Pro, which is Architectural Digest, you know, smaller city yes. outlet. And and I think everyone listening will know what that is, but right, yeah, okay. yeah. I, I if you're in the design community, you probably do. Okay. But um, so Ad Pro, I start. They're either assigning me stories or I'm looking for stories on my own, and it was all these new terminology and learning how the design industry works. And it was kind of hard sometimes looking at press releases and going, okay, let's pretend I'm a consumer who knows nothing about this. That's how I would like you to explain some of this stuff to me sometimes, <laughs> because it can get very techy and 
terminal terminal yes, yeah very all the jargon all mm-hmm. the jargon um and you know if you're talking to another designer that's great but I'm a writer and a storyteller first and foremost, and I love architecture. I love design. I love um, home decor and all that stuff, but I don't always necessarily know some of this stuff. Exactly. Um, And maybe I wouldn't connect to a story if it's full of a lot of jargon. Exactly. So give you, yeah, give you the stories the reader would want to read it to understand it. Exactly. I think that's a really good tip for people listening. Because consumers love to read design outlets Mm -hmm. and um, stories and Mm -hmm. architecture stories. And if I can't translate what you do for them, (laughs) because- (laughs) They have a problem. Yeah, Yeah, there's a problem. Yeah. Um, I actually have an article coming out probably today um, about this company here in Dallas. It's an arts company and they're changing the way that the business of art is done. And I remember going to their website and going, oh, I I kind of know what you're doing, but I really don't know. So I had to do a a long interview with them on, uh, on Zoom. And I was like, please just like break down what you do, because I need to be able to take everything you're doing and give people a story. Yeah, that's really good advice because we actually had, from personal experience, um, one of the writers pick up our story, and she she called me because we had a mutual friend, and she and I start telling her what we're doing. I'm like, well, basically, it's like an irreverent showroom. <laughs> you know? We don't want wings, and we don't want um, you know, we want people things to feel more accessible, not so precious, not so formal, more comfortable. Like this is a collaborative working space and studio. And she was like, Oh, why didn't you just say that? You know, Absolutely. And, and I was like, okay. And and she loved it because she's interviewed all these formal showrooms over the years. And she's like, I don't even like going in there. I don't feel like I'm welcome. And and so it was like such a lesson for me that yes, you just had to break it down. I think architecture and design, like the community, the that sector, it feels and it is high class, right? Um, there's an element of class to it when we're talking about higher income individuals. And so people who are interested in it don't know how to connect with it because sometimes it's portrayed as something that's not for the masses right? when it is. Yes. And so I want to also break that barrier I love to that. show because, and we know this, there's statistics about it that, you know, people of color are generally not overwhelmingly part of the higher class. And that's because of America's history, right? But they love design just as much as anybody else. They might not know the terminology yet. They might not feel accepted in the community yet. Um, This is, I think Zara mentioned it. Um, There's not many designers of color still. And there's a reason because of class in this barrier. She talked about that. Yes. And I I thought that was very on point in her um, interview with you. Yeah, she was really bold and, um, and about that. I thought that was really helpful too. Exactly. She broke it down. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we need to break it. Or I would like to break it down as, as a writer, writer mm-hmm. and showcase that this art, design, architecture, the way we design our homes today, the way we design our buildings and our cities, it's for you because it affects all of you, whether you know it or not. Mm-hmm. When we all live in a society that is built with design and whether we know how it's built, we it's good to know if it's built for us, if it's built for the betterment of us, how it was built how how color and fabrics and texture make us feel things. Um, the meanings, because it is a meaningful industry. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I always love to tell. I, I feel like we get stamped as materialistic or kind of, um, you know, an industry that's doesn't have a lot of depth. But I think we have some of the most depth. I mean, because you're creating a space that people are being in and living in and creating in. And if it's done well, then all of that's even better for it. Absolutely. And I didn't recognize that for the longest time yeah. that, to look at my surroundings, how is it affecting me? Yeah. And I can tell you being a freelance writer, having to work from home, oh, you need a space that lo- gives a lot of love and creativity. Thank goodness you have your new house. And I have a new house and your, it's giving um, me all of historic that. Historic home. 100 year old Sears and Roebuck house. Sears and Roebuck house? Yes, what it is. Heck? I have the advertisement. Oh my goodness. I love that. I know everybody who has quirky little rooms, right? Quirky rooms. Uh-huh. You know, one of two of the rooms were enclosed as part of the porch has a wraparound porch it has so romantic oh yeah it has the 100 the original 100 year old floors oh my goodness it does not have the original windows they changed them out which is good because they probably weren't very energy efficient exactly but the you know the paint 
color that it was just repainted before I bought it. They had to get it specially made to look. Because does it have to be historically registered? Oh, fantastic. It does. I'm in a historic district. So when I do anything to the outside, I have to get permission. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. I love historic homes. I think we need to preserve them. And, Me too. Um, you know, recognize that beautiful history that it has. Are you going to do a story about your house? I am. Good. I actually am probably going to do a lot of stories about Yay. my house. Actually, um, Right now, I think I told you before the pandemic, I was writing about 95% travel mm-hmm. and about 5% arts and design because of the pandemic. And I'm not traveling very much. And the travel industry has taken a hit when it comes to publishing. So while I can get stories, it's a little bit hard. Um, You're doing creative writing classes too. I'm teaching more creative writing classes. I didn't teach this much before the okay. pandemic. So I started doing that, but about 95% of my writing right now is in the arts and design sector. And it's exciting and fun because when you buy a house, that's all you really want to talk about anyways. And you just want to do stuff. I always want to do stuff to my house. Absolutely. It's like just a fun passion. And yeah, I like following your Instagram and seeing what you're up to on it. The green shelves were so pretty. I love them. I love them too. I'm having fun. I always have a project. It's going to be never ending. And I'm, I'm the kind of person who likes to upcycle and refurbish things. Mm-hmm. I like to build stuff with my hands. I'm trying to figure out how to own a home and design it. I, I want to take my time. Um, but then you get excited and you want to keep going. Exactly. And <laughs> it's such a balance. What is your, um, what's your favorite story that you've ever written? Oh man. Hey, I'm sorry, but I want to know like that which one hard. just really, you have to have some one story that you're just really proud of. Yeah. I think writing and everybody I will have people who will go look on my website and look through my articles. And I do have a section there if you'd like to check it out. But the one that I get the most feedback on that everyone is just like that got me. I wrote a story for Bustle about my sister and how growing up, because my sister has mental and physical disabilities. She was born with tuberous sclerosis. So she's unable to walk. She's unable to speak language. She can verbalize. Um, And she's unable to kind of, like, she's not able to make movements to indicate things with her hands. Like, if you wanted somebody to go over there, you would point, go over there. She's not able to do that. So growing up, it was a very unique experience in which I had to learn what she needed and what she wanted and what was going on with her by recognizing her verbalizations and her body movement that's very, very subtle, that you're not going to be, a lot of people can't pick it up unless you have a lot of experience with that. You have to have very sensitive communication. Exactly. And my my sister Tiffany, because she was in my life and we have a very strong bond. Is she younger or older? She's older. She's, she's turning 43. She's been in your life. She's always been that? in my life. And for, you know, three and a half years, it was just me and her. And then my brother came along. And the story, this essay that I wrote for Bustle is about how my sister taught me to tell stories. Because if... I can't understand somebody. I can't tell a story. If I can't understand my own self and what people are trying to say without actually having to say it, I can't tell stories. Um, I can't sometimes pull things out of people. If, if I, I, if I can pick up that they're holding something back, I'll try to figure ways to pull stories out. A lot of people don't like to open up about things. I love learning about family history. So I've kind of learned how to do that too. But with my sister, I had to learn what she needed and wanted and what she was trying to say to me all the time by the way she moved her eyes, by the way she turned on her side or looked at me or stopped moving her head. What's her name? Tiffany. You had to speak Tiffany. How to speak Tiffany. And it was a language that is very hard to learn, but it was one that made me the storyteller I am. So in this article, I break down how my sister taught me to be a storyteller. And she was my first teacher and my first mentor. And because of her, I'm able to tell other people's stories. Yeah. And I love, I love that. So that one gives me the fills. Yeah. The time. And it's your, it's your personal story. And I think that even like interior designers and people in our industry, anytime you speak to them and they speak about their projects, it is something in their personal history that comes out in their work that makes it so meaningful. Exactly. And so it's, it's integral to understand that I think to and when you're, you have clients, whether, you know, you're working in the hospitality mm-hmm. industry, designing a hotel lobby, or you're working on a client's home, I know that designers are going in there saying, I want people to come in here and feel like this. Exactly. They are. They're trying to tell a story through wallpaper and art and, you know, decor that they put out. And when it's 
done well, you feel it. I've been in places around the world that have just made me want to cry. What's your favorite? Oh, Subotica. Subotica. It's in Serbia. It's a small town near the Hungarian border and where Barcelona is famous for mm-hmm. Art Nouveau of, you know, Gaudi's work. Mm-hmm. Subotica is very under the radar and it has the most gorgeous Art Nouveau. I mean, I've seen Barcelona. I've seen Gaudi. I love his work. Not trying to downplay it, but this Hungarian Art Nouveau in Subotica is just phenomenal. It takes your breath away. It has soul. Uh And um, one of my favorite places there in the city, and actually one of my favorite places I've ever been in the world, it's called the Synagogue. It's the second largest synagogue in Europe. They only have, I think, 300 Jewish members or uh, Jewish Jewish citizens in Tupotitsa. But before the Holocaust, they had 6,000. And they were all taken away during the Holocaust. And killed in the concentration camps or besides 200 of them who came back and but the synagogue was their place and it is spectacular inside it is so colorful and they redid it and I was one of the first people to see it after it was redone in 2018 wow they'd been trying to get it redone for I think 30 years and it finally came into place and it's orangish and it has orange and gold and green and all of these floral designs and from the top to the bottom, it's all these colors combined. And it is the grandest place that makes you feel so loved. It has stained glass windows. And I just like wanted to cry. I did not want to leave that place. It was, it's gorgeous on the outside too, but inside is phenomenal. What a cool name too. I like to say that word. Subotica. Subotica. I thought it was Subotica. But oh, yeah, fair. so yeah. it's the Serbian language. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Yeah. You've had some good experiences with your travel writing. Yes. And I and I'm very glad that I've had opportunities on on trips to see a lot of different architecture around the world, a lot of design. Um, and I didn't notice that when I first started traveling. But thankfully, very quickly, actually, that I think that's how my love for design and architecture grew is because I was traveling the world and going, look at that building. Woo! <laughs> this is how they live. This is how they dress. It's so different. It was a good exciting. transition for you. Yes. Yeah. And I think a lot of places around the world have historically, you know, America's so young, so I understand why we have some of the architecture that we have. But around the world, I think at different moments in history, communities really showcase their culture and their identity and what they believe through the design of their city. Absolutely. Because of even the technology that was available to them to do what they could or couldn't do. And I think all, that's also like such a cool piece of architecture. Yes. I actually also have a degree in history. So okay. it kind of mixes into my love for like this historical aspect of design and architecture. I mean, whether I'm in, you know, Machu Picchu looking at the design that they created or the design left over in like pyramids and um, ruins. I, oh, I love ruins. <laughs> have you been to Pompeii? Not yet. I actually have not been in, cause it's in Italy. I haven't been in Italy oh, yet. Yay. I know. Let's go. Um, I'm down. Yeah. <laughs> I've been to Greece. So I saw a lot of, I saw part, a lot of parts of Greece and I, I love that design, but I also like finding out design places. I didn't even know had something I'd be interested in. And places that aren't overly done. Sometimes I just, I just love even more mm-hmm. that like it wasn't it wasn't the designer thinking about the experience they wanted me to have, but it was just because it was what it was. Exactly. I had that experience. Switzerland was pretty great too in that aspect. I could see that. I also I love um, communities that bring in nature inside, mm-hmm. are um, not having such a strong cutoff between nature and how we live and how our cities work. I think that's a beautiful design aspect that we need to do more of. I love, for that reason, um, Costco Viejo in mm-hmm. Panama. I, have you been? I, no, but I've written about it. Or I've yeah, there's, a, there's it. been like a lot of um, interesting tourism going on there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like such an interesting juxtaposition, overused word, but that's the only word for it of, of design happening there from French colonial to... Yes, to modern, uh, exactly. Uh-huh. And it's just, there's still like from Noriega, there's still like bombing holes and, you know, like, it, and it that's part of it. It hasn't been repaired and probably won't be. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of meaningful. And if you feel something there from that too. I agree. I saw something like that in Decay. Belgrade. There where NATO dropped a bomb, you can still yes. see it. And they didn't change that. Everything else is, you know, fixed up around it. But I kind of like that too. I like it. It's, it's a 
it's a harsh reminder sometimes of things and mm-hmm. whether good or bad, we need to remember them. Absolutely. You know? And sometimes yeah. decay is pretty. Exactly. True, mm-hmm. true. True, true. So, okay, we'll do a little rapid fire here. If you could interview any designer, dead or alive or artist, who would you want to interview and write about? Mm. I mean, she would probably hate it, but (laughs) I mean, you said artist, so Uh I would love, and this is probably such a basic answer, but I would love to interview Frida. (laughs) It's not a basic answer. She was She's the ultimate. Phenomenal, but I think yeah. she would one not allow me to interview her. I think she would just probably be like, "We're gonna go like hang out. Let's and party. go climb a yeah." yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she I like to climb the ruins. That. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. I would do something like that with. I would love that with Frida, but just spend time with her, and because she she's an artist, she was a phenomenal artist, but she was so much more than that. Um, she's an, an advocate, activist. activist. I I love the stuff she doesn't. I think. She kind of saw art from kind of what I understand is like she just didn't really see herself as an artist. She knew she was an artist, but also it wasn't like this big deal in her life that we've made her mm-hmm. into. Um, it was a form of expression for her. Yeah. And she I think it was an getting outlet it out. too. Exactly. Yeah, she so. was trying to understand things. And actually, I'm going to write an essay about one of her paintings. She, you know, a lot of people don't know. She was half Mexican and I think half German. Her dad was German or somebody, one of her parents were like not Mexican. European. I did yeah. not know that. I didn't know that either until I saw this painting in which she has a family tree and she's trying to discuss the fact that she is a product of interracial marriage. And at the time in which she painted this, the Nuremberg laws had been passed mm-hmm. and that was not allowing you know, people of different races, I, th- I believe in Germany, mm-hmm. to um, date. And so I saw this piece when I was in New York City right after my first book sold. I went and gave myself a trip Good and I you. saw it in MoMA and I read what it was about and it actually launched um, launched me forward to write my second book. So, which is very much yes. about similar things that she kind of felt is how I was kind of feeling ironically in 2018, way after she had ever. But what's you know. cool about that is that you saw this painting and it wasn't that you read the card and knew the meaning, you felt a meaning from it. And that's, and then now I think you telling that essay is going to be really interesting because of your experience with the artwork and then your own personal experience. Yeah. Please share that. I can't wait to write it. It it should come out later this year. I think I have a due date in October. Do you already have someone who's going to publish it? Yes. Artsy is going to publish it. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I'm writing, I'm writing for new people these days. Artsy, um, dwell. Okay. I, my first article for them will come out, I think next week. And then they've just assigned me another article today. Like Dwell's cool. Dwell is cool. I feel like you feel very Dwell to me. I'm liking them. Uh-huh. I'm, and I'm glad they're asking me to work with them more. And same with Artsy. And Artsy's, I love Artsy articles. I love their, I think it's super. And their Instagram, like I get, I love knowing what they're going to be writing about just so mm-hmm. I can. Hey, that's a good shout out. We need to tell people about that. Yeah. Check out Artsy. My article for them should be coming up today. It's about the Dallas arts business here. Okay. They're, they're called the Gossipy on Gossipian okay. investments. Okay. And it's a phenomenal way that they're going to disrupt the cultural ecosystem to try to allow um, more black and brown artists and cultural makers to have ownership and equity in arts, in the arts. So like own the galleries, own the development, um, have better representation, try to get them showcased to, you know, institutions or businesses that are trying to look for new artists. But it's not an, an exploitive way. It's in an, a place of ownership, which is really cool. Yes. I like that. Because there's power in ownership, mm-hmm. right? And of course. You run your own business. I run my own business. Exactly. Totally different thing. Absolutely. You don't mind working at midnight. No. It's my baby. Yes. Um, and showcasing, if you if you have equity, you have power mm-hmm. in something. Agreed. And historically, that's not been the case for black and brown artists. And so they're doing something phenomenal. And I can't wait for that article to come out because I can't wait for this company to blow up in the next few years. You need to talk to Matthew before you leave today. Matthew and Andre, their production company, they are doing, um, producing songs for black and brown artists. Um, and How just beautiful. Yeah, totally. Like they don't have any rights to the songs. It's just a totally like 
passion project. I love that. I think when I see people doing passionate stuff and they're doing things that remain authentic to who they are and what they believe, and that's a very hard thing in business to do, right? Um, I think a lot of us feel pressured to be silent about racism or sexism or homophobia. And in some instances, there are people like black people and brown people who work in, in businesses and they are they are not allowed to speak up sometimes, right? So it's up to some of us who have the capability and the privilege to tell these stories and to help further um, diversity in the workplace and in storytelling. And yeah, it's not just a call to action to get your diverse story out there. It's a call to action if you have privilege to tell stories and to to you know help bring these stories to light to use your privilege in that way. Absolutely, which I think it's super cool. Like Matt, what Matt and Andre are doing too. I think that's phenomenal, and I it's really hard I think for people to be authentic to themselves when we feel pressured in so many aspects of society. Mm-hmm. But when you're doing something you love and you're authentic about it, you are going to be rewarded. Agreed. At least I have. Obviously. (laughs) And so uh, I'm a cook. It's my love language. And I always say folio cooks. And so um, are you cook? I do cook. Best recipe. Mm. Or thing that like, you know, people might say, will you make this for me, Alex? I love your, or what if someone special were coming for dinner, you'd make this for them. Ooh, I think if somebody, I'm really good at winter foods. Cool. So like, stews mm-hmm. like a good beef stew Yum. chicken tetrazzini oh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I usually do chicken tetrazzini if somebody's I love like coming in special hearty cooker yeah. I'm a hearty cooker too but I'm also very I think if I would say like what my specialty is you can probably give me five or seven random different things and I'm gonna figure out how to put them together I can have like, like you're going to figure out how to fix your house. Exactly. <laughs> if I, my fridge is just like, okay, you really need to go to the grocery store. Somehow I figure out how to make like a pretty phenomenal meal. Or if I'm camping, sometimes that happens too. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank I mean, I know you're like me. such a busy lady. So it's really a privilege to get to meet with you truly. And I'm, I feel like I learned a lot and I hope everyone listening did. And I hope there's like a call to action. I hope you get some story ideas from this. I love getting story ideas because sometimes it's really hard for me to come up with things unless people send me the idea. Exactly. Because it's, there's just so many out there. It's hard to peruse through them. But yes, please send me story ideas. Please connect with me. I want to get more into architecture and design. I want to tell these stories and I want to make a change in this industry. I think I've done it pretty well on the travel side. I'm pretty well known over there for my diversity initiatives. And I want to see the same being done in architecture and design because it's for everybody. Agreed. And Dallas has an amazing community. I think you're going to hear some, hear some, hear from some people. Yay. Thank Can't you so wait. much, Alex. Thank you again for having me. Of course. Thanks for listening, y'all. Let's keep the conversation going. If you have a story you would like for us to illuminate, please email hello at folioco.com. That's hello at P-H-O-L-I-O-C-O dot com. And be sure to subscribe to hear future episodes.